Part one, chapter two of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen eighty-two to seventeen eighty-three. Death of Madame Dillon. My mother had always been delicate since the birth of her son, who died at the age of two years. She did not take any care of her health. She rode horseback, hunted the stag, and sang with the celebrated Piccini, who was a great admirer of her voice. Finally, about the month of April 1782, at the age of thirty-one, she had a hemorrhage. My grandmother, who did not wish to believe in the sickness of her daughter, was at last forced to admit that she was seriously ill. My mother consulted a physician who then enjoyed a great deal of celebrity, and he ordered her to go to Spa. It would be difficult to describe the inconceivable rage of my grandmother at the idea that her daughter was going to the springs. She did not wish to accompany her there, and refused her money for the journey. I think that the Queen came to my mother's help on this occasion. We set out from Hautefontaine for Brussels, where we passed a month. My uncle, Charles Dillon, had married Miss Phipps, the daughter of Lord Mulgrave. He resided at Brussels, as he was not able to live in England on account of his numerous debts. At this time he was still a Catholic. It was only later that he had the unpardonable feebleness to change his religion and become a Protestant in order to inherit from his maternal great-uncle, Lord Litchfield, who made this a condition of his heritage of £15,000 sterling. Lady Charles Dillon was very beautiful. The year before, she had visited Paris with Lady Kenmare, my father's sister, who was also a great beauty. She went to the Queen's Ball with my mother, and the three sisters-in-law were generally admired. A year had hardly passed before they were in their tombs, all three died at an interval of one week. As I have already said, I did not have any infancy. At twelve years of age, my education was already far advanced. I had read much, but without discrimination. From the age of seven, I had been given an instructor. He was an organist of Bézières, named Com. He was engaged to give me lessons on the clavecin, for at that time pianos were very rare. My mother had one to accompany her voice, but I was not permitted to touch it. I had always had a great desire to improve my mind. I wished to know everything, from the cuisine to experiments in chemistry, which I made with the little apothecary who lived at Hautefontaine. The gardener was English, and my maid Marguerite took me every day to see his wife, who taught me to read in that language generally Robinson Crusoe, of which I was very fond. At eleven years of age, my mother, finding that I was not speaking English as well as formerly, engaged for me an English maid, who was expressly brought over from England. Her arrival caused me great chagrin, as I was separated from my former maid, Marguerite. Returning to my story. At Brussels, we stayed in the house of my aunt. She was in the last stages of consumption, but the disease had not impaired her beauty, which was really heavenly. 
she had two charming children a boy of four who afterwards became viscount dillon and a girl who later became the wife of sir thomas webb i had a great deal of fun with these children my greatest pleasure was to care for them and put them to sleep i already had the maternal instinct i felt that these poor children would soon be deprived of their mother i did not realize that i myself was so near the same misfortune my mother took me to see archduchess marie christine who governed the low countries with her husband duke albert of saxe-teschen while my mother was talking with the archduchess they showed me a cabinet in which there were portfolios of prints i've often thought since that this was the beginning of that superb collection of engravings the finest in europe which duke albert left to the archduke charles from brussels we went to spa where monsieur de Gemenet rejoined us it was at spa that i enjoyed for the first time the dangerous poison of praise and success the days that there were dancers at the assembly room my mother took me there and the dancing of the petite francaise soon became one of the curiosities of spa the Comte and Comtesse Dunod had just arrived from the interior of Russia, and they had never seen a girl of twelve years dance the gavotte and the minuet. This same princess later became the second wife of the Emperor Paul I of Russia, and thirty-seven years later, when she met me again as a grave mother of a family, she had not forgotten the little girl of other days. At that time she said many pleasant things regarding the recollection she had preserved of my grace, and above all, of my beautiful figure. However, the waters of Spa shortened the days of my poor mother. Nevertheless, she disliked to return to Hautefontaine, as she was certain that she would be greeted there by my grandmother as usual with scenes of ill-nature. But my mother had the thought common to all those who are attacked by this cruel malady of the chest that she should have a change of air she wished to go to italy and asked first to return to paris my grandmother consented and then for the first time fully realized the unfortunate state of her daughter on her arrival at paris my grandmother gave my mother her own apartment as it was the largest in the house during her last moments, my mother was well cared for. The Queen came to see her, and every day a groom or page was sent from Versailles to inquire regarding her. She grew feebler from day to day. In writing these lines, after forty-five years, I still have a feeling of regret that nobody spoke of the sacraments of the Church, or thought of sending for a priest. In this house of an archbishop there was not even a chaplain. My mother did not realize that the end was so near. The 7th of September, 1782, she died in the arms of my maid. A good old friend of my mother's, Madame Nagle, brought me the sad news. In the morning I awoke to find her beside my bed. She told me that my grandmother had left the house and that I should get up and follow her and ask for her protection and care. 
that now I depended on her for my future. She said that my grandmother was on bad terms with my father, who was then in America, and that she might disinherit me. My young heart, which was nearly broken, revolted at the idea of this dissimulation, and the good lady had much trouble in persuading me to allow her to take me to my grandmother. At last I consented, and as I expected, my grandmother made a great scene of despair which produced a most painful impression on me. After the death of my mother, my grandmother and my uncle went in the month of October 1782 to Haute-Fontaine and took me with them, as well as my instructor, Monsieur Combe, who occupied himself exclusively with my education. I was very fond of this chateau, which I knew would one day belong to me. It was a beautiful estate, all en domaine, about twenty-two leagues from Paris, between Villecotteret and Soissons. The chateau, built towards the beginning of the previous century, was situated upon a very steep hill. It overlooked a fertile little valley, or rather gorge, opening out upon the forest of Compiègne, which formed an amphitheatre at the back of the picture. Prairies, woods, ponds of clear water filled with fish, were situated beyond a fine kitchen garden, which you overlooked from the windows of the chateau. The chateau itself, although it had no architectural beauty, was convenient, vast, perfectly furnished, and well cared for in every detail. My uncle, my grandmother and my mother had accompanied my father as far as Brest when he embarked in 1779 for the war in the Antilles. On his return, my uncle bought at Lorient the whole cargo of a vessel just arrived from India, consisting of Chinese and Japanese porcelains and Persian cloth of all colours for the hangings of our apartments. All these riches were unpacked to my great joy and arranged in the large garde meuble, where the old concierge let me roam with my maid when the weather did not permit me to go out. During the life of my mother, the residence at Hautefontaine had been very brilliant. But after her death, all this was completely changed. My grandmother had taken possession in the absence of my father of all my mother's papers and of all the correspondence which she had preserved. The fortune of my grandfather had run through her hands and all of our investments had changed in nature during the minority of my mother. She was only fifteen years of age when she lost her father, General de Rotte, who died suddenly at Hautefontaine only a short time after purchasing this property. He had bought the chateau in the name of his wife, under the pretext that it was paid for exclusively with the funds, ten thousand pounds sterling, given as a dot to my grandmother by her father, Lord Falkland. My grandfather had inherited the fortune of his mother, Lady Catherine de Rotte, and also that of his aunt, the Duchess of Perth, both daughters of Lord Middleton, minister of James the Second. Another relative had left him at Paris, the house in which we lived, Rue du Bac, 
and four thousand livres of rente upon the Hotel de Ville of Paris. These two investments were the only ones which remained at the death of Monsieur de Rotte when my mother came into possession. My great-uncle, the Archbishop, had lived in the house on the Rue du Bac for twenty years without paying a sou of rent to his niece, and without even paying for the repairs. When he left the house after the death of my mother and leased another, he borrowed forty thousand francs on mortgage and used the money for repairs which are urgently necessary. I did not know anything about this debt, which I was obliged to pay myself when I sold the house in 1797. At the death of my mother, all that I received was this house in the Rue du Bac, which was leased for 10,000 francs to the Baron de Stahl, who afterwards married the celebrated Mademoiselle Necker, and the 4,000 francs of income spoken of above. I had no expectations from my father. He had already spent the portion of 10,000 pounds sterling which he had inherited with the Dillon Regiment, of which he was propriétaire as heir of his uncles, James and Edward, who were killed within two years of each other. Towards the end of the autumn of 1782, my uncle set out as usual for Montpellier to preside over the states of Languedoc. As Archbishop of Napon, he had this prerogative, which he exercised over a period of twenty-eight years. My grandmother and I remained at Hautefontaine, where we were very lonely. When my grandmother found herself alone at Hautefontaine, in that grand chateau formerly so animated and brilliant, when she saw the empty stables, when she no longer heard the baying of the hounds and the horns of the hunters, she became desirous of changing her mode of life and of persuading the archbishop to do the same. When the archbishop returned from Montpellier, where he had remained only the time absolutely necessary for the meeting of the States, we went to meet him at Paris. My father at that time was governor of the island of Saint-Christophe, which he had captured during the expedition in which his regiment had gloriously contributed to the success of the French forces. In his absence, my guardians represented to my great-uncle that he should no longer continue to live in my house without paying any rent or even looking after the repairs. He therefore made up his mind to leave the house and, as already stated, borrowed on mortgage the funds necessary for the repairs. About this same time, my grandmother, who was tired of Hautefontaine, bought for 52,000 francs a house at Montfermeil near Livry, about five leagues from Paris. The price was very moderate, for the land comprised 90 acres. The house, which was in a charming situation, was named Folie Joyeuse. It had been built by Monsieur de Joyeuse, who had begun the construction where one ordinarily leaves off. After having laid out a fine court enclosed by a railing, he built at the right and left two wings, terminated by two handsome square pavilions. He had then found himself short of the money necessary to build the body of the house, 
so that the only communication between the two pavilions was by a corridor at least one hundred feet long. His creditors had then seized the house. The park was beautiful, surrounded by walls, with every path terminating at a gate, and all the outlets opening on the forest of Bondy, which was charming in this locality. The furniture was brought from Hautefontaine, and in the spring of 1783 we were quite well established at Folie-Joyeuse. The first year no repairs were made, but we passed the summer in laying out plans with architects and decorators, which interested me very much. End of Part 1 Chapter 2